This is Barry.FYI, a project designed to capture stories of personal experiences and life lessons for the young and impressionable. Your hosts are Matthew Barry, Amy Barry Smith, and Jessica Barry Woodward. Join us in a series of interesting interviews of family members and friends. We hope you'll enjoy learning a few things about the Barry family. Hello, this is Matt Barry in Houston. I'm talking today with Bob Barry in Moon Township, and we're going to talk about living in Belgium. You and Sandy moved your young family from suburban Pittsburgh to suburban Brussels on what I think was New Year's Eve, 1974-75. Tell us about the decision to go there. Well, okay. Now, uh, in the family unit, we then had Sandy's aunt Nadine, whom I'm sure you remember, who was in fact 75 at the time, and off she went with us. Um, and she stayed with us for, uh, I guess, three years, and then eventually she went back, not exactly to Boone, but to Kansas City to live with her widowed sister. And they lived there for the rest of their lives, as far as I know. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's the case. Now, uh, I went to Brussels as a career assignment uh, from the nuclear unit in Pittsburgh. I had been uh, assistant engineering manager, sort of the inside guy, what you call a chief of staff, I guess, for the engineering manager. Uh, and then there been a reorganization, which we can talk about sometime, and I was in charge of a group called systems integration, and then they decided that, uh, it would, first of all, they needed somebody to be engineering manager in Brussels, and uh, they decided I was it. Um, interestingly enough, that decision was probably made by the assistant to the, the administrative assistant to the general manager, because he was the only one who paid attention to uh, what you might call career planning for the middle management. Uh, so, before going to Brussels as part of the process, I went off to a one-semester program at Harvard Business School, at the end of which I was reassigned to Brussels. Uh, the Brussels was the uh, international headquarters for the nuclear group. International headquarters was out in Pittsburgh, as well, you might think, but for reasons that were never entirely clear, they were in Brussels. So at that time, Westinghouse Civilian Nuclear Power was it around the world. We had uh, subsidiaries or joint ventures or licensees, depending upon the country and depending upon the politics of the country. And let's see, Italy, Spain, France, Belgium, Sweden, uh, Brazil, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, um, Philippines and so on. So, uh, by comparison, now uh, in the general run of things, Westinghouse was a very weak number two to General Electric in light bulbs and turbines and everything, except civilian nuclear power. Uh, we had a good half of the U.S. business and the uh, overwhelming international share. GE had some plants in Tokyo for Tokyo Electric, and that was about it for the 
for their international business. I don't know why their international business didn't take off, but it never did. Uh, we did just fine. Let's see, I'm, I forgot to mention England, but the, you name it, we were there. Uh, so somehow we had to have an international headquarters that turned out to be in Brussels. If you're going to put an American company into Europe, the place to put it is Brussels because there are actually houses to rent, which is almost never the case in other capitals. Uh, the taxes are sort of favorable, at least they aren't onerous, because there are all kinds of exclusions that you can move people in. And there are no particular limits on how many people you can move in. In France, for instance, you can only have two Americans, even if you have a huge company. In Belgium, bring all you want. Also from other countries, they don't care. Just bring them all in. Um, Belgium just loves to be that kind of a place. So it's a good place to be for an American company to have a footprint. You remember ITT had a huge center in Brussels for exactly the same reason. And so that all the other countries, who's uh, who Levi Strauss, to Meineke Muffler, all had their location in Brussels. Uh, so it, part of the queer thing, off I go to Brussels, it was supposedly a two-year assignment, but I wasn't in any hurry to go back, so we in fact stayed five. We, we stayed until you finished high school. Uh, even though about a semester before you graduated, I had actually been reassigned to the fuel division doing a licensing deal, a reverse licensing in Sweden. So I spent the first, I said, I don't want to go back to the U.S. yet. I'll, I'll fiddle around with the Swedish thing until uh, graduation day, which is what we did. You may remember that uh, Jim Moore uh, had been the president in uh, Brussels. And he had already gone back to the U.S., and in fact, he brought me back to work for him. That was unusual in the sense that normally the sequence of events was I had some different job, and Jim Moore showed up six months later as my new boss. Hmm. And this is one case where Jim actually got there first. So we'll have to talk about that uh, dynamic relationship sometime. But off we went to Brussels, and then you went to the you and the girls went to the international school. We had um, other, there are other schools, English-speaking schools in Brussels. You remember St. John's in Waterloo. It's also a military school. And uh, the, the international, not the international school, but the uh, common market school or something, which was uh, uh, for the mixed European students, which emphasized taking classes in two or three different languages. Uh, the international school, you you can remark on yourself sometime. It looked like a pretty good operation, as those things go. It was big enough. Most international schools are very small. This was big enough that they actually had, had some students and sports teams and a band and things like that. So there we were, and then uh, I eventually went back to the state. Um, there, one reason for going was to get away from where I was. That's always part of a career. Uh, dynamic, as I'm sure you've had your own experience. And also the the company, the business had grown like mad, like Google, like Microsoft. From the day I joined, they had maybe 300 people. By the time, the middle 70s, we had probably 100,000 people, then later 200,000 people in various branches of the thing. So counting all the international joint ventures and this and that. 
enormously successful business for Westinghouse, um, although we had our times. Uh, but anyway, that business had gone flat. So uh, there wasn't uh, instant escalator up advancement anymore. So we were looking for other things to do, which was part of a career change. One, one of the reasons I agreed to go to Brussels. Uh, and we had our times, and I think we, uh, we, we were very successful in the uh, international operations as long as I was there and afterwards, as far as I know. So uh, that's, that's something of an answer. Uh, why don't you ask a different version of it? I'll give you a slightly different answer. <laughs> were there any reservations in uh, taking young kids uh, out of school? And uh, I guess we were at North American Martyrs, and uh, I had just started South Junior High. I uh, didn't like it much, yes, but uh, uh, did you uh, choose ISB over St. John's uh, over somebody's advice, uh, owing to somebody's advice? Yes, we had a, we had an ongoing there operation there already, and we had people, Americans who had kids in various schools, including St. John, and the and the consensus advice. I'm not sure it was meritorious, but anyway, the advice was to go for the international school. And then when Jim Moore came along, he did the same thing. You may recall. Uh, so Jim Gallagher, whom we can probably talk about sometime. Uh, uh, was there ahead of me, and he had his kids in the international. So I'm not sure it was a scientific analysis, but uh, the general idea was to go to that school. Now, in terms of taking kids out of school, um, since we were going to be a place where there was an English-speaking school, I didn't worry about that too much. I know people who uh, went to Brussels and put their kids in uh, local schools. Jim Moore put the youngest, for instance, in a French-speaking Montessori school, and uh, they had a terrible time with that. So, I mean, that's just too hard on the kids. So we didn't do that. Uh, if if the uh, school had not worked out, then I uh, we would have packed up and come back to Pittsburgh. But that never seemed to be much of a problem. Uh, although you may remember it differently, I, it didn't appear to be any problems there. I I thought ISP was great. <laughs> I was really happy there. It was a, a lot more fun for me than South Junior High was, for sure. Well, I, Amy came back as a junior, and uh, Jessica was a sophomore. And I, I think they had as much trouble adjusting. And I've heard this in lots of families, international families, that the, that the family has much more difficulty coming back to the States than they do going somewhere else. For one thing, we went to Brussels. We had all kinds of people waiting on us. We had a chauffeur. And we had people uh, ready to uh, take care of paperwork and things like that. And you come back to the States, you're expected to be able to cope. And uh, that's maybe not as true as it ought to be. I know a lot of people had trouble with their kids when they came back to school, to American school. When we arrived in, uh, what about the selection of uh, Rosan Jeunesse, did, did you go to on a house hunting trip and uh, choose that particular house and that particular commune uh, ahead of time? Because it seemed like we landed there and we already had traction. Yeah, well, we had this six-month uh, incubation while I was, or one semester incubation, 16 weeks ago, incubation when we knew we were going, and we'd already been over on a visit. Uh, 
Sandy and I, and we had done some house hunting at that time. And uh, there were quite a large number of houses at that stand. If you remember, it's a big house, even had an elevator. There are a lot of uh, houses like that available in the Brussels area. They're called Americanishire houses. They're built, there's even a tax subsidy to the proprietor to build these houses so that they can get the international companies to come in. So there are quite a few of that quality, even uh, some owned by the same guy. Uh, and, and we looked in, in Waterloo and different places. But this one turned out to be easy because West, uh, Westinghouse guy had been living there and he'd been transferred to Spain. The house was empty. Westinghouse was probably eating some expense for that house, or I don't know. So the simple thing was just to move in there. It was ready, it was open, a pretty good location. Uh, about as close as we could get to the office without actually being in the city um, suburb, in the, in the inner city apartment houses and so on. This is, these are freestanding houses. Uh, you can look at a lot of Europe and you will not find freestanding houses like that to rent at all. But that was that worked out pretty well. I think houses are kind of nice, and after you get used to going up and down the elevator, you kind of miss not having one. Yeah, uh, in fact, it seemed most of our neighbors were expats as well. Maybe that whole street was uh, designed that way. Well, there were quite a few. Indeed, that whole area of Osmanthanes was uh, uh, one out of the way to attract the the international set. I remember, I remember Buggins Murray. What was the Murray's? It was a boy and a girl, weren't there? I mean, they were just a block yeah, Mike away. Mike Murray was my friend. Yep. Mike, and uh, uh, there were, I mean, a couple of other Westinghouse families were in the area too. So, well, yeah, that was the place where the international set landed. And then the the uh, ICT people tended to be a little bit farther south, and Kiki Lee and that one. They seemed to be in. I guess that probably was Waterloo, where they lived. And you uh, sold the house and cars in Monroeville, and I guess assumed you were going to be gone for at least two years. Yeah, we kept the house and rented it for a year or so, and then I didn't like that uh, arrangement, so we sold it. Uh, well, the, we rented the house to a guy who from who was a Belgian employee middle manager who had gone to Pittsburgh on a rotational assignment. So we rented the house to him for a year, I think, at what I thought was a pretty high rental rate. And then when he left, I just didn't want to fool anymore. So uh, we had our real estate company that was managing the rental just sell it. And uh, w one of the reasons I didn't like it, even the location is very good. Remember next to the school, next to church, and you know, walking distance to the library and all that. The uh, the deed was imperfect in the sense that somebody had an easement which allowed them to, if they wanted to, to build a driveway right through the property to another uh, area behind the house, behind our house, in the woods, mm -hmm. where somebody had the property and could build houses back there. So that didn't seem very good, so just unloaded it. Um, and it turns out later on, somebody in fact did build a driveway through there and actually ruined the look of the house. So we timed that one right. Uh, we didn't really expect, didn't necessarily expect to go back to Pittsburgh. In fact, didn't necessarily 
expected to go back to Westinghouse. Didn't expect anything. So it was mostly just uh, clearing the field of fire. When we arrived in Brussels, I recall there wasn't any driving allowed on Sundays. Is that, do you recall that as well? Was that some sort of transportation fuel conservation program? Uh, yeah, that was right in the midst of a, a big mess. The, uh, the uh, Arabian uh, OPEC, in fact, when OPEC was created then, all of a sudden there were, was a big boycott. They weren't shipping oil to anybody. And then uh, Europe depends. At that time, Europe had very little in the way of its own oil. In fact, one reason why they're building nuclear plants as fast as they could, they had no coal, no oil. Later, or about that time, the North Sea's uh, oil and gas fields opened up, so that helped a little bit, but they were still very dependent. So uh, Europe was having gas-free days, holidays, and and the United States, the, we had gas lines that ran miles. So utter shortage or utter political mess, which eventually was settled a little bit, but uh, they had several shocking effects. One was the change in the conversion rate, so the, the dollar weakened quite a bit, which was not to our advantage since we were living on dollars converted to the francs with allowances and this and that, but anyway, that didn't help. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was their way of coping with the uh, the European way of coping with the OPEC boycott. Uh, and the gas lines went on in the United States until the day Reagan took office and then they disappeared. Uh, well, we weren't here then, but uh, that's what happened. How did you get to work? Did you uh, drive or drive down to the, or walk down to the train station? I don't recall. Well, uh, when we got there, the uh, several people had moved to the Spanish office. Um, I mentioned the guy who had the house. His name was Rocky Rockenhauser. Another guy, uh, a German, in fact, named Ernst Weiss, who then went to the Spanish office, where he was called Ernesto Blanco. Uh, he had a, a very nice, pretty new BMW 2002, so a four, four or five-seater, not a very big car. Well, it turns out you were not allowed to take a car into Spain, so he had to sell his car and buy another one when he got there. Well, a used car is treated at a very bad prices in Europe because they don't have the system for recycling cars that we do. So I bought that car from him for $1,000. And it was, I don't know what that cost new, but 20000 or something. And so uh, in those days, so uh, we had that very nice red BMW which they used to drive around and jockey around in the yeah, garage and the driver. Learned how to drive on that car. <laughs> right. So we got that car cheap. That was a great thing. Other people who go there and buy new cars, which is sort of the American way, go buy a new Volvo or something, wind up paying a very high price because there's tremendous taxes on, particularly on new cars, not so much on old cars. So anyway, that, that fell in our lap. Later on, we, we had a couple of different cars, but they really were very good. This was a, this was a, a very nice car. Well, one thing happened to that car, a pretty red car. It, it never really gets cold in Brussels because it's got a seaside climate, even though it's 100 miles from the sea. The, uh, 
they don't have snow, they have no snow plows, and never have freezing weather. Well, one day they had freezing weather. Well, one thing that happened was that car, the refrigerant, there wasn't any antifreeze, just water in the engine box, so the, the water froze and all the blowout plugs, which prevent the, the little uh, safety valve, so to speak, pop off, popped up. So here we had the engine and uh, stacks of, of stalagmites of uh, ice sticking up out of the engine block. So I, I, I never imagined anybody would have a car with anywhere in the world without antifreeze, but there it was. So we thought it out, and the car worked fine after that. Uh, we took nice tour buses to school. Tour bus would come pick us up at the right in front of the house, and yeah. uh, I cycled all over town on my bicycle or or down to the train station. We just took the train or the bus everywhere. Didn't need to drive anywhere, so um, it was pretty convenient to take public transportation there. Uh, not. Yes, well, you'll have you'll have to do a recitation on your beer glass collection for this. Uh, yeah, episode all in itself. I, uh, the, the Mike Mike Murray, in fact, that we just mentioned, uh, was a beer glass collector when I met him, and he took me out on a few uh, collection excursions to try to find some glasses for his collection and then that got me into collecting glasses as well we just ride around on our bikes with uh, our gym bags and all of our tube socks stuck in the gym bag and we'd go into the bars and ask the bartender for a glass and they'd always give us one we never stole them and we never paid for them uh, we'd always uh -huh. ask for one and if they gave us one we already had we'd say thank you but can we have this other one back there on the left-hand corner, and uh, they'd usually grudgingly give us that one, too. So that's how we <laughs> learned to speak French <laughs> uh, and some yeah. Flemish and uh, made our way around the small towns of, of Belgium on our bikes. Later on, Sandy would uh, take us in our gym bags out in the car and to some small town outside biking range and uh, dump us off in the center of town and she'd sit in the car and read a book, and we'd run around to the uh, collecting glasses, <laughs> bring them back to the car, put them in the trunk, go back out, get some more glasses. So I wound up with the several hundred glasses uh, arranged in the kitchen, and I still have those glasses. Uh, they're in boxes in the attic right now. But every time we move, I lose a few uh, for breakage, but uh, still a nice collection. It is. I remember we had, uh, as you say, in, when we were living in Brussels, we had all the, the um, rim of the, uh, the kitchen. And then when we moved back to Monroeville, even though you had gone with, you'd gone off to college, we had one whole room full of the things and boxes and then displays. And you had some beautiful, really a beautiful collection. And then we kept thinking of reasons why you should take them in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think you probably eventually... I think when we drove down, we always took a carload. <laughs> right. When I had a house of my own, I've wound up with some space to uh, display them. So, uh, you'd, yeah, you'd bring them to me and uh, carload at a time. 
So ultimately, it was the whole thing was transferred to me, and so now I've got possession of it. I'll do. Well, we had better we had better luck getting you to take the uh, ear glasses than we did Amy to take her cat. <laughs> Although we eventually, I think we just took it up and dumped it in her backyard, and uh, when she was living in Hermitage. And the cat lived there. The cat lived, ran wild and would show up once in a while the back porch. You remember when I talked about that sometime, but when we were ready to come back, uh, Sandy took the cat for a walk. We, we moved out to a motel or something because of the outhouse in the last day. And the, Sandy took the cat for a walk on the leash. And since the cat doesn't have any shoulders, <laughs> the cat took off. But then several days later, Showed up on the on the house, and so a mile away or something across all kinds of streets. Showed up on the uh, porch of the house we were in on uh, neck of Exeter. So somebody called Westing us. What are we supposed to do with this cat? Well, the cat eventually got in the cat carrier and came with a guy who was coming back to Westing us from business in Pittsburgh. Brought the cat along. And the guy was flying first class with his cat. And they didn't have any cat food, so they fed the cat caviar to keep it quiet on the way home. <laughs> and we kept the cat for years. And and Sandy, Sandy was a bird watcher, so she had birds on uh, bird feeders, whatnot, on the back uh, porch. And the cat, of course, would chase the birds away. So we kept the cat in the house in the in the uh, utility room behind the kitchen, behind the family room. And uh, well, cats in small rooms aren't very attractive after a while. So I was of a mind to either uh, drown the thing or force Amy to take it. So eventually, dumped it on Amy. So we saw, I think, every cathedral within an eight-hour driving radius. Uh, what were some of your favorites? Well, you know. Uh, one thinks of Notre Dame and uh, Chartres. Uh, and there were quite a few in um, the, the interesting ones you may recall. Is you you can find these in France with no trouble, no trouble at all. You can find a big flat space where a cathedral used to be, because making engineering now, an awful lot of those things just fell down because they were hundreds of years old. Uh, but the ones, of course, that were maintained uh, are the ones you, you see now. You don't see the ones that aren't there. So we went to the ones in... Uh, there were the, the most impressive one just uh, as a striking thing uh, after Notre Dame and Chartres, I suppose, was the one in, uh, in Brussels called St. Gudula, because you walk in the main door and there are these huge, full-size or bigger statues of the apostles hanging off pillars as you walk in. So you have these enormous uh, statues looming over you. And uh, the, quite a few of them still have their paintings, forgot their paintings back after Napoleon stole them, and then Goebbels stole them, and then they got back. So they have a nice painting collection. We went, the one that's uh, highly touted is where the Belgian kings are buried on the north side, but it's, it's nice, but I don't know. Of course, we went to uh, Westminster Abbey and a few places like that, too. Uh, though, I, I'm, have you been to Barcelona to see the uh, 
Gargoyle Familia, the strange-looking, Dr. Seuss-looking uh, yeah. yeah, I've been there. I didn't make my top 10, but uh, I have been there. It's, it's an interesting place. Yeah, it's a curiosity, I would say, more than anything else. And we went to a few in, in uh, Germany and other places. They're, the ones in Germany are mostly interesting because of the clocks they have on the outside. They don't have much inside. Well, of course, most of them are bomb flat and <laughs> never really recovered, except for the clock. But uh, we looked at lots of museums, and we looked at uh, lots of uh, lots of cathedrals. You're right about that. Some of my favorites were uh, Aachen and mm-hmm. uh, Saint Chapelle. It's probably my favorite in Paris, just for the mm-hmm. uh, stained glass mm-hmm. and Saint Denis. Although I, I think Saint Denis, I went to after. We lived there. I was on a later trip uh, just because of all the important figures buried there. Uh, did you hear the story? This is a year or two years ago now. Uh, Jessica was there in, in Paris and with kids and whatnot. And uh, they went up in Saint Denis and they were told that here's the crown of thorns. It's missing two thorns. One of them is a mm-hmm. So. Jessica came here. We had to go find the thorn. Well, I don't. I then read that there were quite a few people who think they've got the thorn around the world. So maybe that's thorn subdivided somewhat. Uh, but that caused us to go to this uh, strange place in Pittsburgh, uh, which has thousands of relics. And it turns out it was, they were all collected by a Belgian priest who had transferred here. And but had money because his family owned a brewery, which is a good thing to do in Belgium. And he had sent people around to, uh, in a in a period of time when it wasn't fashionable to have relics, I guess. So he bought up all the relics and whatnot from all of uh, the Germany and France and various places, and moved them all to Pittsburgh. So they had the true cross, and they had the crown, and they had Mary's. Uh, uh, cape and just uh, quite a few remarkable things. Of course, I have my friend Howard Braun. Have you met Howard? Who was um, an Orthodox Jew? Uh, always laughed that there were no trees in in Israel because everybody had to have a piece of the true cross. Hmm. <laughs> Any uh, favorite castles? Oh, well, I remember the one at uh, uh, Beerbeek or something. Yeah. Right, right close. Beersel? To it, but, uh, Beersel, that was it. And what else? And we went to the one in uh, in um, Munich, south of Munich, the uh, the one that's the Disneyland castle. Remember that one? If you go to Disneyland, you see a castle. It's a copy of this one in uh, in. Um, Neuschwanstein, it's called, with the strange towers and all these things. Built by uh, a king of Bavaria known as Mad Ludwig. He built lots of those things. So that's certainly uh, worth a trip. Uh, we saw lots of uh, lots of castles. The ones that are uh, well-maintained are still used, and then you really can't see them because, of course, they're 
they just show you the public rooms. At one point, your mother, Rusty, came over and she and Gary's kids and us all went over to Ireland. Was that a, a Barry or a Flanagan pilgrimage or just a sightseeing of some kind? It was just sightseeing, and uh, indeed, that was uh, plotted out ahead of time. Uh, Rusty and Purse came to visit very soon after we got there, and we stayed for a few days. And then uh, Rusty came again with the, with the Gary's twins, and indeed, we went to Ireland. And I had, to, had a friend there with the Bank of Ireland who was at Harburg with me, and uh, he hosted us. You remember, we went to these... Uh, fancy uh, in-castle meal where somebody played the the uh, king and all yep. that. that. He, he arranged that all for us. That was in, uh, and we when we were driving around in a Volkswagen microbus, yep. and some of the time we were on, on the right side of the road, and some of the time we were on the wrong side of the road. Uh, I remember driving down one, of course, there were a few cars, but I remember driving down one stretch wondering why that semi coming back, coming at us, was in our lane. And I finally decided I was in his lane. Happens to everybody. Yeah. Uh, have you driven in, in England or Australia? I have. I don't think I ever wound up on the wrong side of the road, but I was always uh, worried about that. Yeah. Well, I know people who've uh, gotten in wrecks on both sides. I mean, English who have gotten in wrecks in, uh, in, uh, on the continent, and Americans and Europeans who have gone to England and gotten smashed over there. Typically not head-on, like you might do in Ireland, because there's other traffic, but traffic circles tend to you wind up going the wrong way in the traffic circle, or else you think you're going to make a turn, a left turn, and then that doesn't work, and then you get smashed. But you, it, it, even walking on the, you may remember this, if you're just standing on the street, the cars go by the wrong way. So you're looking the wrong way for traffic. Yeah, so people get step out, over, on the, step out on the curb and uh, look in the wrong way. Yeah. So we, we never went back to the States. Uh, while we lived there, although I think we had home leave that would allow us to go back to the States, but we had some great trip, summer trips instead. Uh, was that sort of a plan to spend the home leave doing something else besides going back to the States? Yes, I think we went back once, but uh, you're right, we did not as a rule. Uh, one year we went, the first year in fact, um, we went to Egypt, remember? Yep. We went to the pyramids. Road camels. Did you actually? I'm trying to remember now. We went to the pyramids. Uh, did you go in the pyramids? Yeah. Yeah, we went to uh, pyramids. We went to Aswan, see the dam. Mm -hmm. Rode uh, sailboats on the Nile. Yep. Yeah, that was fun. Well, that seemed to be a good thing to do. Although, uh, I know. Uh, I'd say I would say most of the American you know, expats living in the, or spending time there, I think most of them were more serious about going back home than uh, uh, than we were. Now there was one bunch uh, who 
uh, people, who, Americans who lived in Europe for a very long time. The kids may have been born there. You know, I know you went to school. Their name will come to me in a minute. The, the father of the family worked for ITT, and he, was a, he had a beautiful singing voice. He was always singing someplace. And uh, they would take their kids home for trips because the kids had never been there. So they were, they were exploring America, even though they're Americans. And I was just thinking the other day about Murray and uh, Palma and Steve. What was their last name? Steve. Seeger. Seeger, that's right. I always enjoyed knowing them. Yeah, I spent a lot of time at their house playing cribbage. Hmm. Because uh, they lived nearby, and uh, Palma was a cribbage fanatic. Steve oh. and I were good friends. Steve's a lawyer in the uh, D.C. area. Well, we used to get cards. I think Murray passed away, I, and Palmer was in poor health. I don't know if he's still alive or not. But a lost time. Did you... Uh, you seem to travel a lot. When we lived there, did you travel all over for work? Yeah, uh, most of the people, most of the, let's say, the, the fathers of the people you knew traveled all the time. You remember the guy who was in, with Levi Strauss, uh, had a whole bunch of kids, and his, his, uh, one of his daughters was uh, Amy's best Leo friend. Leo Isotelo. Isotelo, that's it. Uh, delightful people. Well, guys like that travel all the time. They were, they were in fact, salesmen, so they traveled four or five days a week. And there are plenty of Americans in the United States who travel four or five days a week. But most of the people in Belgium were not really running offices. They were, they were administering networks and that sort of thing. Uh, so they travel all the time. So comparatively speaking, I didn't travel that much. However, I did travel. And uh, not very often back to the office in Pittsburgh, uh, once in a while, a few times, uh, but we had, of course, a branch in Spain that was a subsidiary of the one in Brussels, and it was new and very complicated, all kinds of political problems. And then we wound up running the Swedish company from Belgium because the Swedish company sort of collapsed on itself. Uh, it was a joint venture, and the other party pulled out. So uh, I did travel. Uh, but for it depends on the yardstick. Compared to running an office, and even even when I lived in Pittsburgh, I traveled a good bit because we were going back and forth to Washington to shuffle paper with the government for uh, several years. So uh, that was part of the game. And if we had a, in uh, since we were the international group, if we had a staff meeting, it was in some other country. So if you wanted to have a staff meeting in Taiwan, which we did. And it was a big project to get to Taiwan from Brussels and figure out how you're going to go back and, and get a whole bunch of people from different uh, divisions to get to land someplace. It was a real mess. Uh, in fact, when uh, the time I went to Taiwan, you may recall, you were uh, college shopping, I guess. So I, I handed you a plane ticket and I said, I'll meet you in Des Moines. And then you said about making airplanes not fly. I do. I remember being trapped in Amsterdam because of DC-10s being grounded because the cargo doors were falling off. <laughs> well, happily, you were not in one of those. 
Well, I think you you got there. You learned something, I guess. Uh, yeah. I remember arriving uh, the middle of the night in New York, and Gary came and picked me up. Oh, uh huh. And I didn't. I'd forgotten that. Not sure what day it was or how long it took me to get there, but it was a long time. <laughs> yeah, I remember you got stuck for what three days or something to answer them. So we did some college shopping, and uh, you wound up in a pretty good place. Hard to beat rice. Yeah, you, uh, you and I went to Houston to uh, look at rice. I remember that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You're the one who went there, but I think it looked like a good choice to me. That worked, it seemed to work out for you since you, you stayed connected there for several degrees. Yep, very good choice for me. I know you taught at uh, the other college here at the University of Houston. Did you teach at any courses at um, at Wright's? I was a uh, labby and a grader, but I even though I was on a fellowship, I never had teaching duties. So, uh, no, mm. I didn't teach there. They had full professors teaching. That was uh, much better for the students. Yeah, well, they've uh, they've certainly kept it up. I remember going down to visit Ken Kennedy, who was uh, there. He was uh, thought to be the best software guy in the world at the time, and uh, he he was living around and showed me some work they were doing. And uh, he had some faculty and some graduate students, and they were all young. Kennedy was young, and uh, I was trying to figure out which ones were graduate students, which ones were uh, faculty, and I finally decided that the faculty were wearing shoes. That didn't seem to be, I mean, if I were in Texas, I'd wear shoes, but these guys didn't seem to. So they probably knew something I didn't know. Well, when I turned up there, I didn't own a pair of shorts. <laughs> I had to change my wardrobe quite a lot. <laughs> uh, back to Brussels. So we uh, we lived in Brussels in 1979, and that's important because that was the millennium celebration of the founding by mm. Charles de France, Duke of Lower Lorraine, in 979. Uh, do you remember anything special about that year? I remember that that year was particularly well decorated and the city was clean all year. Uh, <laughs> anything else about that year strike you? Uh, no, I, I haven't uh, that passed down the memory hole. Hmm. I know that they were, the whole time we were there, they were trying to scrub buildings and so on in the, in the Grand Place and uh, clean that up a bit. And because, of course, it's a tourist business. And they, they, um, I think they got the Hotel de Ville clean while we were there. Got a hundred and five hundred years worth of soot off it. Interestingly enough, that wasn't bombed much in uh, in uh, World War Two. It wasn't, even though there was a lot of um, uh, fighting back and forth, there wasn't much really in Brussels area. Charles de France is on our family tree, by the way. 
I think that's a very good thing. So we probably own Brussels in some way. Right. We can insert it in. Uh, one of the advantages of being at that international school, and as you say, it was in fact one of the larger international schools that we encountered on our sports teams, uh, was that we saw a lot of Europe just by participating in sports. But one of the interesting things for us was that we had a a baseball league uh, that wasn't part of the school until I was a senior. But we had a baseball field that was at the Formula One track in Nivelles. Do you know why it, we had a baseball field there, <laughs> of all places? I suppose it could be anywhere. No, I, but, uh, yeah, the uh, I, I remember the Little League field that was south of town. I don't recall the being in Nivelles. I mean, it could have been. I don't remember. I remember it rained all the time. And we tried to get Little League to work. Oh, and the first year, uh, Sandy wouldn't let you play in the Little League because uh, it, I think she was very uncomfortable with the traffic and she figured she'd have to drive you. Uh, but in fact, the, uh, the, they were always on weekends. I don't think they even had midweek practices right. at all. Did you? No. Mostly because most of the fathers were out of town all week. But, uh, and that I think ITT, if you look under almost anything at the uh, the sports arena, sports area, the ITT bank hold everything, which was a good idea. Yeah, I remember they would bring uh, baseball bats <laughs> on their weekly airplane flight. We'd get uh, supplies of <laughs> mitts and uh, catcher's gear and things like that from the ITT plane. Yeah, it's a good idea. What about those Flemish painters? They would drive up, unload their van full of wall art into the house, and you'd choose a painting or two. Those guys always look yeah. suspicious to me. Oh, yeah. Well, they were like, a, it was like a Tupperware party. You'd invite not only us, but you'd invite other people in, and, and uh, they would put up some paintings, and then they would sit there and drink wine, and, then, and the prices went down as the evening went on. We did wind up with a few. Uh, that, that was uh, the equivalent of Tupperware parties. They weren't very expensive. I think we paid like $50 or something for a painting. Some of them were pretty nice. But we weren't the only ones. That, that everybody, let's say the international stuff, that was a, a common thing that had going on. Who were some of your friends in Brussels? Were they all work-related? Or were there some others that uh, maybe just our neighbors or other expats, baseball families? Well, we knew some families from uh, the neighborhood, like the Murrays and uh, the Isotano uh, were the neighbors, but they were non-Westinghouse people. They lived sort of on the other side of town. Uh, but I think the usual sort of thing, we met people through the school, and uh, let's see, who else besides that? And of course, not so many of the Westinghouse people, really, I didn't, um, there really wasn't a Westinghouse clique, but, well, I don't know, I guess that's probably true. Remember George Mashey, he had some daughters who were in the school, and they lived in Waterloo, 
and he worked for Westinghouse, delightful guy. And uh, they give Derpy and the uh, a few. There weren't a lot of Americans. There were a few, but and we there are other non-American Westinghouse people, like Hank Lindebank and um, uh, a British guy who ran the Human Resources Department. His name will come to me in a minute. So there were a handful of people that knew socially as well as uh, I would say the usual sort of thing you meet people in the immediate neighborhood and also people from uh, through the school in other words people you knew we wound up knowing their parents Sandy was at the school I think every day volunteering at the library or running the concession stand at the basketball games or something it was very good about that I went to a great number of junior high school girls volleyball games and things like that. And uh, uh, relatively speaking, there were a few, very few fathers. In fact, I was usually the only one uh, because they, uh, the people just didn't have the flexibility. I had. I could get up and leave and go someplace and nobody cared. It wasn't the, wasn't the case for most people. So we moved back in the summer of 80. As you say, that was uh, just after I graduated. I suspected that your job wasn't in Brussels uh, most or part of that year. Um, and you've already said you stayed there so I could graduate from high school. I, I guess I can thank you now for doing that because I really uh, enjoyed my time at ISB. And I, moving back in the middle of a senior year probably would have been upsetting. But, uh, I look back on that and think that was a great time. I, other people I know uh, look back on their high school years and with terror, and they didn't have any good experiences. <laughs> and I look back on mine and say it was delightful. So uh, I thoroughly looked, enjoyed living there and going to that school. Um, I don't know what Amy and Jessica's experiences were, but mine were great. You know, they don't. I've asked Jessica about that and never got much of an answer. I don't know if I have asked any. I'll try that again sometime. Uh, it seemed like it was a big enough school that uh, you could have sports teams, and yet it was small enough that if you wanted to also be in the band, then it was okay. Nobody cared. It wasn't a, a clicks or specialization. But, you know, I guess you had enough of enough of an education that you were able to cope with college when you got there. Yeah, I took. Uh, well, they offered advanced placement and IB stuff. I took advanced placement exams and placed out of a lot of my freshman year. Um, yeah. And it was, school was small enough where I knew everybody in the school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you had some interesting characters. <laughs> Quite a few. I think it was only 40% American at the time. 40. Uh, yeah, that, that I think was probably good. Uh, I remember one time, uh, I don't know if you recall this, but you, you at one time you decided you need to think about where to go to school. So you did this in the correct way. You gathered data. And the data you gathered was you looked around the parking lot of the school and decided who had the best cars and then interrogated your fellow students to say, where'd your old man go to college? And then sorting that out, you decided you wanted to go to Harvard Business School. <laughs> That was a good rational analysis. 
I don't think I bothered applying to Harvard. Well, well, if you're in the South, you'd be better off going to Rice anyway. People think you're funny from Harvard. Although when I went to Harvard, uh, of course, it was just the executive program, one semester deal. But um, that was sort of like my thinking on getting a PhD. I wanted a PhD. I, was, I didn't really plan on doing any research or writing any profound papers, but uh, one did the PhD, so I just pecked away at it. And when the opportunity come up, came up to go to uh, business school jaunt on the expense account, I mean, I could have gone to Penn State or Pitt or something, but uh, or, or even uh, Yale or who else, Tufts. I mean, everybody has those programs. But as far as I'm concerned, if you're looking for credentials, and you go for Harvard. And I actually learned something there, so I don't, I don't think right. I mean, I compared to my engineering graduate school, where I think I learned nothing at all. Uh, the business school actually learned something. We're going to come back to that then in another topic. Okay. Before we leave Belgium, let me ask you: What's the better snack, palm frites, goof, or chocolat? Oh, I like the gopher. Remember the gopher, the waffles. Yep. Uh, uh, gopher is the French pronunciation of waffle. Uh, have you been through that? For these <laughs> sure. Days? Of course. Uh, but you can't go wrong with the pommes frites and, and mayonnaise. I've been eating mayonnaise on my fries ever since. Yes. Well, do you double cook your French fries the way the Belgians? I try do? to, and I've been trying to to perfect the uh, waffle. As well, I've even found uh, Belgian waffle mix that I try to improve. Uh, you have to get the glaze uh -huh. just right to make it authentic. Mm. Mm. I've been back to Europe several times since we lived there. Have you? Yep. Uh, two or three times, but not a great deal. I've actually been disappointed in Brussels. Um, it's changed quite a lot, especially downtown. Looks more. North African than it used to, yeah. but uh, the school invited me back uh, several years ago to speak about the space program. So I got an all expenses paid trip to uh, speak to the uh, minds full of mush. They wanted to hear about global warming because I was a NASA person. I <laughs> told them to unlearn that. So. Unlearn that. That's a good one. <laughs> I remember you made that trip. Uh, that was great. And you went back once to, uh, didn't you, to visit uh, what was, you had a, a girlfriend at the time who was still in school. Her name was Fitzgerald, I think. You, know, you went back to visit her once. Uh, that was, uh, yeah, just a year out of out of high school. Yeah. To go on a ski trip. Hmm. Well, probably hard to ski in Texas. We used to get a week off at uh, around Easter at ISB to go skiing. The whole school would go skiing. Right. Uh huh. Those were some good ski trips because all your friends would be at the same on the same ski mountain with you. Well, wasn't that supposed to be an école de yeah. neige? Well, <laughs> maybe for the younger kids, they actually sat in school, but uh, the older kids, we never. 
they didn't bother with the school part. We just went skiing. Yeah, they were supposed to have classes in a regular school part of the day and uh, go skiing the rest of the day. But what I recall, we didn't have any regular school. Yeah, well, when we went on when we went on family ski outing a couple of times, um, it's really remarkable. I didn't break something because I was I was uh, usually uh, with Jessica, who was quite young at the time, and, uh, and she was getting around. But but um, I I was just terrible. I, I fell down plenty of times, but I'm it's really surprised I didn't break an arm or a leg or something. I learned the hard way. Peter Mundy and his dad took me to the top of Engelberg Mountain and said, you're going to learn on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you don't get there, we'll miss you. <laughs> the thing I remember about Engelberg in particular is getting on the cable car to go up to the mountain. And they pile people on, pile people on, pile people on. And there was a weight indicator up here in front with a red dial, or a red zone, like a, like a tachometer. And the needle kept going, peg, 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 peg. So it was way over, beating on the end, way into the red zone. They kept piling more people on the game. You're thinking that can't be right. Yeah, but here I am in the squash in the back. I couldn't get off the line to. All right, well, if I have I forgotten something important? Well, uh, in the unlikely event that, that we miss something, I'll, uh, I'll send it back. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Barry.FYI. If you'd like to share your stories, please give us a call. We'd love to have your life lessons and your participation. Memories sweeten through the ages just like wine. Quiet thoughts come floating down and settle soft.